Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good morning, everyone. It is Sunday, January the 9th, 2022. It is currently 1024 a.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you from the very empty sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church, located right here in the middle of nowhere, Texas. Yes, the sanctuary is empty where there should be people here right now. In fact, the Sunday school hour should have started, uh, well, I would say 24 minutes ago, but we always start late. So it should have started 10, 15 minutes ago, uh, and there should be people here, and I should be, well, not I don't ever really stand behind the pulpit, but I should be teaching right now to people here inside this building but that's not the situation this morning. So I am here behind the microphone and I'm going to still try to do what I intended to do this morning with people present. I'm just going to have to change up the approach a little bit, but hopefully it is still beneficial. Now, yesterday we introduced a new week of Bible study. We finally finished up Micah chapter five. You talk about a difficult chapter. That took so much time, so much effort for everyone who participated in the study of Micah chapter 5 with their doing the homework, the outlines, everything, uh, putting together a chart showing how the word, uh, how the Assyrians are referenced throughout the entire Old Testament, whether in a literal way or a figurative way, everything, all the work that everyone did. Thank you so very much. I think that helped and benefited everyone involved in that study. It was, I, I hope we, we did as much as we could to try to, to try to understand that chapter. And, uh, that the sermon review we did in the middle of all of that, I think was very beneficial as well. It really made us dig in and see the way a lot of people handle certain passages in the Old Testament. But that was a, a difficult study of Micah chapter five. And I, when I got ready to open up the curriculum, I was, I was like hoping that, oh, we're going to get something maybe very simple, very practical, very easy. And lo and behold, I opened up the curriculum to be told that this week's study is the book of Obadiah. And I was like, we go from Micah chapter five to the book of Obadiah. Whoa, this is going to be an interesting week of study. So I've given everyone the, the homework. Homework was very simple. Read, 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 read the book of Obadiah. And that's what you're supposed to do all week is read it and read it and read it. You need to pick a key verse, that the verse that we're going to use for uh, using the Bible memory app, the verse we're going to memorize this week. Micah 5.2 was last week's memory verse, so continue to review that. Um, but what what verse should we memorize in Obadiah? I've already received at least one email giving a, a suggestion. I, 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 I am thinking, and I'm just going to go ahead and throw this out there, that maybe the key verse that we need for the book of Obadiah Maybe it's verse one, and here's the reason why, just just so that you you can kind of see this, all right? Obadiah, and when I say chapter one, Obadiah verse one, there's only, it, it's there's not chapters, it's just 21 verses. So Obad, Obadiah verse one, the vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a rumor from the Lord and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye and let us rise up against her in battle. Now, the reason I'm thinking verse one, I know you, that Edom, uh, Edom, Obadiah one is typically not a verse you're going to find in your Bible memory pack, right? It's not going to be like, hey, yeah, what verse are you memorizing? I'm memorizing Obadiah one. Re- what, what? Why? That's probably would be the question someone would have. But the reason I think maybe Obadiah 1 should be the verse that should be memorized this week is because it really explains, doesn't doesn't it kind of just explain what the book is? The vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord concerning Edom. Doesn't doesn't that start kind of summarizing what the book is? If you memorize Obadiah 1, and anyone ever says, well, what is Obadiah about? 
if you just repeat verse one, doesn't that give them some idea of what the book is about? I think it does. And I think maybe I, I, we could put that down as a key verse. Maybe some have suggested, I think, verse 10 or 11. And, and I think there was another one uh, as well. I think, uh, I think, uh, let's see here. Let me look here in this book. I got a book right here. I know you can't see, but let me look here. Um, I think they give the key verse as verse 15. Uh, uh, For the day of the Lord is near against all the nations as you have done it. Uh, as you have done, it will be done to you. What you deserve will, will return on your head. That, that This book that I have here says that's the key verse. I don't, wouldn't the key verse be the book, the verse that really describes what the book is about, what it is? And doesn't Obadiah 1 do just that? I know I'm trying to like prove my point, okay, but I'm, I'm just going to put that out there and then everyone can engage in discussion this week of what we, we've got to hurry quickly, put it this way. We need, by the end of today, we need to have a verse deter, decided on. So you have till the end of today to determine what verse. Now, don't send me the shortest verse in Obadiah and go, that's the verse we should memorize. No, that you don't get to do it that way. We have to determine uh, the the verse that we need to memorize that I think best summarizes and is really the key verse of the book, and I'm going to argue it's verse one. That that's my my discussion. You can let me know your thoughts and opinions. You can email me and let me know. All right. So that was so. The first thing was to read. That was one of your assignments. Second was to pick a key verse. People are working on it. I just gave you my argument for why I think it's verse one. And third was outline the book, outline the book. Now, I've already had one very, 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 very rebellious person by the name of Stacy say that she's not going to outline the book. She just refuses to outline. So uh, that, you know, we can, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what we do with that. But I hopefully others will engage in actually outlining the book because I think, again, the reason we outline, I, I cannot stress this enough, I don't say outline simply to give you an assignment for the Bible study exercise for the week. I could give you all kinds of other assignments. The reason outlining is important is because it is your number one observational tool. Outlining is your tool to do observation. You can't do interpretation until you do observation. Should there, should we make a hermeneutical rule? If you haven't outlined a passage, if you haven't outlined a chapter, you cannot offer an interpretation of the passage or of the chapter. Until I see your outline, I don't want to hear your interpretation. Should that be a rule? Can we make that a rule? Maybe, maybe. Does, how many would agree with that? Okay, nobody wants to agree that that's the rule. Well, obviously no one's going to agree because there's no one in this building. Okay, but I, if I, I, basically if I made, said that as a rule, Nobody would agree with it because nobody ever wants to do the outlines because the outlines require work. But the reason they require work is because it's the work of observation. And that work of observation then prepares you to do the work of interpretation. If you're not willing to do the work of observation, then you should not even pretend to offer an interpretation. Everybody wants to do the interpreting without doing the observing. Everybody just wants to go, read, here's what I think. Well, congratulations. You have a thought. Billions of people have thoughts. Billions of people have thoughts about the scriptures. But those thoughts are useless if they're not based off observation. What is required for observation, I think, is, is outlining. It's just, to me, it there, there's, I cannot even stress to you how how much work goes into reading, say, 21 verses over and over and over and over and over and over and over, and then start trying to organize them, trying to organize them. Once you start organizing them and trying to, and, and not by interpreting, but just by, I'm, I'm organizing them in some way that reflects what's actually in the text. I'm, I'm getting what is in the text on paper. So I'm observing it. I'm writing it, which, which demonstrates my observation that is increasing how much time you're spending looking at it. And everybody wants to just jump right past that. Everybody wants to get into preaching it, applying it, 
interpreting it. But nobody wants to get into the, the work of observing it. And it's just, I don't understand that. I, I think that's why there's so many problems and disagreements. So many disagreements is a disagreement over the lack of observation. I think most disagreements about a text is a disagreement over observation. It's not a disagreement over interpretation. It's just a disagreement over, it's not even a disagreement. I'm going to say it this way. I think most disagreements is a lack of observation. It's not a disagreement over observation. It's disagreements are based on a lack of observation. Everybody just wants to start arguing about the interpretation. Well, you got to spend a couple of hours, weeks observing it before you can argue about its interpretation. But everybody just wants to jump to that. So, and, and I just stress that because Obadiah is one of those books that probably require even more observation because of the lack of, of knowledge of the book. If, if I give everyone a blank sheet of paper, I say this all the time. I said, write down everything you know about Obadiah. It would be, it would probably be shocking how many people don't even know that there's, there, it's not, there's not even really a chapter. It's just 21 verses. What is it about? Well, I've given you an idea. The vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord concerning Edom. There you go. We're getting an idea just right. See why I keep doing that? Verse one, verse one, because I think verse one is the verse you're going to be memorizing whether you want to or not. Okay, so Obadiah, are you ready? We're going to jump in and hopefully this is going to be beneficial, all right? I I really would, would prefer for everyone to be here and we could do basically a book background study, but we're going to do kind of a modified book background study for this Bible study exercise, part two of our Bible study exercise in the book of Obadiah. Your assignment so far was to read it, pick a key verse and outline it, all right? I'm going to possibly get to an outline in this in this uh, study, maybe. I don't know. We'll have to see. Um, I, I, I got to just determine which direction. I, there's, there's one section here. I got to figure out what to do. And I'm, I'm, I'm debating with myself how to approach this. And I think I'm just going to, I think I'm going to have to take the time to do it. There's a part of me that just wants to skip it, like kind of just briefly state it and then move on. You'll, you'll see when I get there. I have to make, I'm going to, I'm still trying to decide with myself what's the best way to approach. It would be probably more fun or easier to pull it off with actually people here than doing it in an empty room, but I'm, I'm going to have to just modify things and see what works. All right, so are you ready? The book of Obadiah. Okay, here we go. If the book of Obadiah was assessed simply based on its length, it may be considered the considered to be insignificant or as one source says the most minor of the minor prophets now they weren't calling it the minor the most minor of the minor prophets they were saying that's how a lot of people would see it that that one book i looked at said that some people would call this the minor of the minor prophets simply based on its size it's only 21 verses and because it's so small, well, then this is the minor of the minor prophets because we know the minor prophets and the uh, major prophets, uh, the only distinct distinction there between them is the one the, why some are considered major and some are considered minor is because of the size of the books, right? So this one is a major, this one is a minor. Well, Obadiah would be the minor of the minor, but that would be, I, I can't stress this enough. We, just because it's the shortest book in the Old Testament, which it is, uh, just because it only has 21 verses total, because it does, just because all of that is true, that it's small, that it, it, may, it may seem insignificant, we cannot forget, though, it is still God's inspired word. Therefore, it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto all good works, to every good work. It is the word of God. So just because it seems insignificant, and this is just true of anything, especially when you're dealing with the minor prophets, major prophets, doesn't matter. No matter when you get into some of these parts of the Old Testament and you're like, what in the world is going on? It can be confusing. What, what it, like trying to figure out parts of Micah chapter five. It may appear to be confusing. It may appear to be difficult, but it is profitable 
Now, now the problem is what we have a tendency to do is we say it's profitable because we take the text and then we try to immediately come up with three points of application. It is profitable because it's God's word. It's profitable because it's God's word. I don't have to then try to say, oh, let me, let me try to find a point of application. No, it's profitable because it's God's word and the study of God's word is what benefits us spiritually. I don't have to try to just make something, pull something from the text. We just study what's in the text and then what's there is what there. We don't have to add something there to so-called make it relevant or make it practical. It's profitable because it's God's word. It's practical because it's God's word. It's relevant because it's God's word. We don't need to do anything else. So you may look at Obadiah and go, well, okay. I mean, just, just, just again, consider verse one. The vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. You may be like, well, okay, it's a word about Edom. I don't even, you may say, I don't even know who Edom is or was. What does that have to do with me? Immediately when you start thinking that way, that is a bad way of thinking. It's God's word. If it's a God's word concerning Edom, it is still profitable to you in some way, shape, or form, simply because it's God's word. Simply, it doesn't have to be like, we've got to find three points of application here. It's God's word because it's practical, it's, it's beneficial, it's profitable because it is God's word. I cannot stress that enough because I think we, we we get ourselves into trouble. So just a little bit. It's the shortest book of the Old Testament. It's 21 verses. There's not chapters. It's just 21 verses. It may seem, appear to be insignificant, but it is God's word. Therefore, it is profitable, even though it's a word about and concerning Edom. All right. Now, the, if, you, if you're using the Bible study curriculum, which for, for those who've signed up for the curriculum, you'll notice they have a clear agenda with what they want to do with the book of Obadiah, all right? For some reason, I keep wanting to say the book of Edom just because it deals with Edom. But all right, the book of Obadiah, just, uh, just stay away from the curriculum for now. Just stay away from the curriculum. Don't look at it um, because it's going, I want you to, I want us to consider really what the book is trying to say and then we'll spend the later part of the week we, I'll probably take at least one episode to go through the entire, everything the curriculum has to say. So I want you to use the curriculum. I just want you to wait because they have an agenda. They, they, they're using it. They're using the book of Edom to try to basically almost do a topical study, it feels like. We don't want that first. We can't use the book. Did I say the book of Edom? We can't, we can't use the book of Obadiah to talk about topics until we first understand what's in the book of Obadiah and what it's actually about, which is about Edom, right? So before we start trying to find topics that are relevant to 2022, we got to figure out what Obadiah had to say in regards to Edom and what that meant at that time. So I just don't want us to poison our thinking about it this early on, if that makes sense. All right, so this is just a little bit of background, getting us kind of started and getting us ready And so, so far your assignments have been read, pick a verse, and I've already told you verse one, I think is the key verse, but I could be wrong. And outline, 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 which I'm probably going to try to do for you today if I can get to it, all right? Now, let's start with the author, the author, right? Now, the book, the vision of Obadiah, the book of Obadiah is the vision of Obadiah, all right? So, this is something just to consider. According to at least one source, there are 13 people in the Old Testament who have the name Obadiah. Now, I have not verified that number being 100% accurate, but at least 13, at least possibly up to 13 people named Obadiah. However, there seems to be literally no connection to any of the other 12. So 13 people, including the one right here in the book of Obadiah, there are 13 people total with the name Obadiah. And this Obadiah here has no connection with any of the others, according to at least most sources. You always can find some source who may argue different. I Again, if we if everybody was here, I would have everyone have the Bible dictionaries open and I would have everyone go from one dictionary to, we would we could see if there's agreement on this. I'm just going to put forth 
this out now, and then we can talk about any possible arguments against it later on in the week if we need to. All right, so 13 people in the Old Testament have the name Obadiah. There seems to be no connection to any of the other 12. So this Obadiah has no connection, it appears, to any of the other people named Obadiah in the Old Testament. I love this. We don't seem to really know anything about Obadiah. That, that, I've read that in a number of books. We don't, we don't seem to really know anything about Obadiah. It, it, it just, we don't really have, I mean, even here in the text, it doesn't really say anything other than the vision of Obadiah. It doesn't really give us much information. We don't really know anything about Obadiah. And the reason we know so very little is that the, is that the book itself, it, the author of the book of Obadiah provides basically no datable events or kings related to Obadiah. Like, you know, well, like in some books, well, here's the, the word of Isaiah during the times of this king or this king or this king or this king or before this happened. No, there's no datable events uh, really connected to him. There's no kings. Now, I think there's one possible connection of a date that we'll see here in a minute, but most sources that I looked at said something along those lines. There's no datable events or kings. So I think some books refer to no monarchs listed, but no kings. So pinning down the exact period of his ministry, according to one source, this is how one source puts it, According to one source, pinning down the exact date or period of his ministry is, their words, I quote, impossible, right? So we, 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 we seem to not really know, I mean, we, don't, we know very little about the individual. We know very little. Now, there are times when you're reading a book in the, in the Bible and knowing the author, knowing to whom they were writing can be very critical in establishing historical context and can be very helpful. Here, we've got someone named Obadiah. We don't know anything about him. We don't even really know what period of time. I, I think that there's maybe a clue. I still think there's maybe a clue. And, and I, maybe not all the sources agree with me here. I may put forth my hypothesis as we move forward, but we'll see, all right? Now, it appears, and, and you can see as you read these 21 verses, there appears to be an emphasis on Jerusalem. And if that is true, this could suggest, and I'm putting, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a lot of maybe possibly here, could suggest that he resided in the southern kingdom of Judah. If he's, if he's emphasizing Jerusalem, then that would probably, and, and we understand the minor prophets during the divided kingdom, this would put him in the southern kingdom of Judah. It possibly, and I stress that as possibly. I'm going to say that again, possibly. I don't want to be dogmatic at this point in time. I, I would, I got the Bible dictionary right here. I got uh, another, I got another book here, but I, I don't want to, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to go from all the different sources right now. I, I don't want to do that today, right? Because it's, it's just when you're, when you're sitting here behind this microphone, it's a little more awkward to do that than when standing uh, in, with the pulpit, at the pulpit. So I'm just going to go a little bit more this direction this morning. So, all right, so let's just kind of review quickly. Book of Obadiah, small, small book. Possibly would people would view it as being insignificant. Uh, it's only 21 verses, shortest book of the Old Testament. You, people could call us the minor of the minor prophets. However, what we have to remember is it's God's inspired word. So therefore it is profitable and it's profitable not because of what we supposedly can, how we can apply it to us. It's profitable because it's God's word. All right. The author, Obadiah, it's his vision. There are 13 people in the Old Testament named Obadiah, and this Obadiah in, in the book of Ob Obadiah doesn't seem to have any connection to any of the other 12. We don't seem to know really anything about Obadiah. We seem to have very little knowledge. Uh, and the reason we have very little knowledge is because he doesn't really, there's, there's no datable events or kings connected to him. So pinning down the exact period of his ministry seems impossible. And that, that just gives us very little information to go on about the author. 
The author does seem to emphasize Jerusalem, which meaning there's a possibility he resided in the southern kingdom of Judah. Since his father isn't mentioned, it is possible that Obadiah did not come from a kingly or a priestly line. In other words, since no father was mentioned, there's a good chance wasn't a part of a priestly line, wasn't part of a kingly line. All right, so in a roundabout way, this is what you can say about the author. Kind of just shows up out of nowhere and we don't know anything about him. That, that's, that's big. I know that's not like, whoa, that's, that's great. That, that's, that, that, I know it's, but that's, I mean, we've got to be honest. He just kind of just shows up out of nowhere. So really, in this particular case, our understanding of Obadiah cannot be based on in any way, shape, or form the author and his background, his connection. Really, our understanding of it, it's just going to have to come from the words itself because we don't really know anything about, about Obadiah. We don't really know anything about him in any meaningful way to, to provide some kind of insight in how to handle the book or interpret the book. The focus, all right, and this, this is interesting. This is kind of the focus of the book. He seems to have no real harsh words for Israel or Judah. He doesn't seem to have any real harsh words for Israel or Judah, which typically, if you read the other prophets, it's like they're going after Israel, they're condemning Israel, they're condemning Judah. He doesn't seem to have any harsh words for either of them, which kind of puts it in a unique category. It's a unique feature. Like he's not really going after Israel. He's not really going after Judah. Instead, he focuses his prophetic words at the nation of Edom. This seems to be because they delighted in Judah's downfall. Now, I'm just, now remember, Bible study exercise. I'm going to at least throw this out there. If, and I, I don't think there's any way to get around this, the vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord concerning Edom. All right. If his words are directed at Edom because they delighted in Judah's downfall, does that mean then this is written after Judah goes into Babylonian captivity? If it is, if it's, written after they go into Babylonian captivity and Edom somehow rejoiced in their downfall, then you would have, we can narrow the time frame. It has to happen after they go into Babylonian captivity. Now, I'm not going to say right now, you, you can, that, that's, you can do that for your assignment. When do they go into Babylonian captivity? You tell me when they go into Babylonian captivity, if that, if he, if this is words to Edom because of how they responded to that downfall of Judah, then we say, well, it had to happen after this. That would give us at least a hint. That, that's my theory. I don't think, I don't think many sources say that. I, I don't, I don't believe they do. And so I, I, I'm going to put that out there as a possible way of at least identifying a possible time frame in which Obadiah would be, hey, they, they basically rejoiced at the downfall of Judah. Well, he now here is God's word to them. Or is it referring to Judah's downfall in some other way, some other capacity? We, we could get into a lot of discussion here. But I think we should know what the real question is. I think, I think, I think everyone should know what we really have to focus on. All right? And here's what we, I, I think it becomes obvious. Let me go, I'm going to go read Obadiah chapter one, verse, or chapter one, verse one again. The vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a rumor from the Lord and an ambassador is sent among the heathen, arise ye and let us rise up against her in battle. Now, there's a lot there in verse one to figure out. There's, trust me, there's plenty to figure out. But concerning Edom, so for anyone who's going to study the book of Obadiah, I think, I think you can just write this down as a rule. You cannot understand Obadiah until you have at least an elementary understanding of Edom. If you don't have an understanding of Edom, you can't really understand Obadiah because it's concerning Edom. 
So what can we do? Well, we could grab a Bible dictionary really quick and look up Edom, but I don't have everyone here. And while the Bible dictionaries are here and not at your house. So I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to do a little work on who, what what do we know about Edom? And we're going to do so by really just looking at a number of scriptures. All right. And I'm going to look at some commentaries as well. So here we go. Think of it this way. If you think of Edom and Israel, Israel in general, right, involving the northern, the southern kingdom, even as a united kingdom, Edom and Israel, you can put it this, you can put this down. It's a history of conflict. Whenever you speak of Edom, it is a history, you're speaking of a history of conflict between Edom and Israel. It's a history of conflict. I think that's very important to understand. All right. Now, as one source says, just who were the Edomites anyway? So when we say Edom, we can refer to them as the Edomites. That's E-D-O-M-I-T-E-S, the Edomites. The more you understand about Edom or the Edomites, the better you are prepared to at least have some you have, a, you have a foundation which to stand on as you try to work through the book of Obadiah. I think that's a fair assessment. Now, the nation of Edom crops up all over the Old Testament. I think everyone will, I don't think there's any disagreement here. Edom is all over the Old Testament. Walter L. Baker, who wrote a commentary, he stated this, judgment against Edom is mentioned in more Old Testament books than it is against any other foreign nation. Now, according to William L. Baker, judgment against Edom is mentioned more in the Old Testament than against any other foreign nation. That there's judgment mentioned against all kinds of nations. But the how many times judgment is mentioned against Edom, according to this commentary, is more than all the other foreign nations. That would mean that Edom is talked about a lot. I'm going to, we do not have time to look all of these up, but I'm going to give you these references for you to look for yourself. All right, are you ready? Here we go. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 14. Isaiah eleven fourteen. Please don't try to look them up now because if you're looking them up now, well, you won't be listening to anything else we have to say in regards to Edom, all right? Isaiah eleven fourteen. Isaiah 34, 5 through 17. So Isaiah eleven fourteen, Isaiah 34, 5 through 17. Isaiah 63, 1 through 6. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 25 through 26. Jeremiah 25, 17 through 26. Jeremiah 49, 7 through 22. Lamentations 4, 21 through 22. Ezekiel 25, 12 through 14. Ezekiel 25, verse 35. Joel chapter 3, verse 19. Amos chapter 1, verse 11. Malachi 1, 4. And then, well, the whole book of Obadiah. The whole book of Obadiah is understood to be a words of judgment against Edom. Not against Israel, not against Judah, but against the Edomites. That's a lot of scripture about Edom and about the Edomites. Now, here's the the question. Now, Now, whenever I can say something practical, I will. Now, this is just, honestly, ask yourself, how much do you know about the Edomites? And if you don't, Why not, considering how many times they are mentioned in the Bible? Now, we have a tendency to read, and when we see that which we don't think has application to us, we skip it, which is a bad way to handle the Bible. All right, that's a lot of scripture. All right, I'll go through those again. Isaiah 11, 14. Isaiah 34, 5 through 17. Isaiah 63, 1 through 6, Jeremiah 9, 25 through 26, 
Jeremiah 25, 17 through 26, Jeremiah 49, 7 through 22, Lamentations 4, 21 through 22, Ezekiel 25, 12 through 14 and verse 35, Joel 3, 19, Amos 1, 11 through 12, and the entire book of Obadiah and Malachi 1, 4. This is a a very important question. Here we go. What did this nation, which bordered Judah to the east and south, do to arouse God's wrath? If If judgment is pronounced against them more than any other foreign nation, what in the world did they do for God to be so upset with them? What in the world did Edom do for God to be that upset with. that, And what can we learn from it? According to one source, they were proud, arrogant, and self-sufficient. So according to one source, they were proud. They were arrogant and they were self-sufficient. Okay, well, proud, arrogant, and self-sufficient I mean, who in the Bible wasn't proud, arrogant, and self-sufficient? Wasn't Israel at times proud, arrogant, and self-sufficient? I mean, I mean, wouldn't that a common, th- isn't that a common thing of all human beings? So I don't know. Does that, does that really, hey, God was really mad at Edom because they were proud, arrogant, and self-sufficient. I, I, I think all, wouldn't all the nations fit that category? I'm not sure that's a good enough answer. I'm not, I'm not sure that's a good enough answer. I'm not sure I like that answer. But, according to another source, most of all, they looked down and hated the chosen people of God. An animosity that went all the way back to the book of Genesis. That may make some more sense. They hated Israel. They looked down upon the chosen people of God. Their animosity and hatred was towards Israel, and that's why God's wrath was against them. That seems to be more, that that seems to be better than simply saying proud, arrogant, and self-sufficient. Maybe in their pride and their arrogance and their self-sufficiency, it leads them to a great hatred and antagonism towards God's chosen people, Israel. Maybe that makes some kind of sense. All right. Now, they, now, and here I'm going to be using God's masterwork. That's what I'm going to be using here because they trace this all the way back. I think everyone should know where they trace this. I think everyone, well, say I'm asking like there's people here. This would go all the way back to Genesis 25. I'm going to read how God's masterwork handles this. Remember Isaac's twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Their sibling rivalry began in the womb of their mother, Rebekah. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is so, why then, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two people will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Afterwards, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's hill. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she, and Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. Genesis 25. 22 through 26, and I'm using the translation that is referenced here in this uh, book, right? So they say this is where it all starts. 
two nations was going to arise from these two children. And there was almost like there was conflict in the womb. There, there were already, in a sense, hostility there in a roundabout way. And that was going to symbolize the hostility that was going to proceed from the womb and throughout all of Old Testament history. And obviously this hostility, this conflict gets to a level where God is, well, pronounces judgment against, well, one nation frequently, more so than any other foreign nation. But let's continue. As the boys grew into men, their differences became even more evident. Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. One day Esau, famished from working in the field, asked his brother for a swallow of red stew he had made him. The request earned Esau the name Edom, which means red. Jacob served up his stew, but only after Esau surrendered his birthright to him. Now, we, 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 we we could spend all day going back. The reason I'm reading this, the reason I'm reading this from the book I could go through these scriptures and start reading the scriptures. This is summarizing the scriptures because if I start reading the scriptures, it's going to be a tendency to want to, like even right now, I want to stop and start talking about that entire story, right? Like what, you, you force your brother to sell his birthright because he's hungry? I mean, like what kind of nonsense is that? Hey, I'm starving. Well, sell your birthright and I'll give you some food because I'm a loving brother. You talk, that just kind of shows the hostility and animosity and conflict even right there. Hey, I'm hungry. Well, sell, sell your birthright. Sell your inheritance. Sell, I mean, you know, it's just, it, it, yeah, that, that doesn't make uh, Jacob look like a good person there from my perspective. Later, Jacob disguised himself as his older brother and received the family blessing from his blind and ailing father, Isaac. Enraged, by Jacob's deception, Esau vowed to kill him. So Jacob fled for his life to Haran, the land of his mother's relatives. Jacob remained in Haran working for his uncle Laban. 20 years later, with his wives, children, and possessions in tow, Jacob returned to Canaan and Esau was waiting. With an army of 400 men, Esau rode to meet his returning brother on the road. Miraculously, it wasn't blood that flowed, but tears as the two embraced, Genesis 33, 4. God had foretold Jacob's blessed status while the boys were still in the womb, Genesis 25, 23, and bestowed the Abrahamic covenant and protection on Jacob when he first fled to Haran, uh, Genesis 28, 13 through 15. This wouldn't be the last time God would exercise his grace and protection over Abraham's chosen descendants. Now, I just want to make this very clear. This is so very, like we, we, we talked about this in kind of our study in Romans 8. This is just from a human perspective. There's so much here to just like struggle with. Like, wait a minute. So God bless and protects Jacob. <laughs> who deceived, who who wouldn't even give his, his, his brother who was hungry food without trying to get his birthright from him, having him basically give up his birthright. He deceives to get the blessing, but God protects and blesses him, but not in a sense Esau. And you're like, that this goes to God's election. That's why in Romans, this the story of Jacob and Esau is, is used to talk about the doctrine of election. God loved one and hated the other before they were even born, before they'd ever done anything. This is a, a just when you read the story yourself, you just kind of like, what, what, Jacob, man, what in the world? What are you doing, Jacob? It's hard for you to look at Jacob and go, man, you're really a great brother and a great guy. It's, it, you're kind of like, you you're not nice. You're not good. Both Esau and Jacob initially settled in Canaan. Their respective families grew into nations. Esau's into Edom and Jacob's 
into Israel. There's the origin. There's the origin. Esau, that becomes the nation of Edom. Jacob becomes the nation of Israel. Now, this is very important. Remember, very early, the two nations inside her womb, there were two nations. And these are two nations. And, well, this this begins the the, the origin. I mean, the conflict started, in a sense, in the womb. And it continued, all right? Um, So their respective families grew into nations, Esau into Edom and Jacob into Israel, and prospered so much that the land could not sustain them, Genesis 36, 7. So Esau moved to the hill country, uh, leaving Jacob all of Canaan. Though the twin brothers had graciously reconciled, the two nations carried on the struggle that began in Rebekah's womb. The animosity flared up generations later after Israel was freed from 430 years of Egyptian slavery, Exodus chapter 12, verses 40 through 41. When Moses and the Israelites asked permission to pass through Edom on their journey to the promised land, the king of Edom said no and backed up his answer with a military barricade. Numbers chapter 20, verses 14 through 21. So now we see the, so the animosity is in Genesis. Now it's in Exodus, all right? So Moses and the Israelites, they asked permission to go through Edom and they're like, no, Lord, you, you, can't, you can't do that. You can't come through here and we're gonna put up a military barricade to ensure that you don't. James Montgomery Boyce, right? He used to be the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He says this, because he, he mentions another conflict between the two nations, all right? He says, David conquered the Edomites and a great battle recorded in 2 Samuel 8, 13 and 14. And from that time on, through the reign of Solomon, the Edomites were subject to the descendants of Jacob. One writer notes, until this time, Edom must have been thought of Israel's elder brother and being stronger, older, and more developed. By this battle, the elder was supplanted by the younger and clear historical analogy to the Jacob-Esau parallel in Genesis. From this point on, one can trace the bitter rivalry which is documented in the prophecy of Obadiah. Now, I want to read this all again. So we, we know the, the, the issue between Jacob and Esau. We know that Israel and Moses asked to pass through the land and Edom, the king of Edom says no. We know all, that's all pretty simple and straightforward. But according to James Montgomery Boyce, the real turning point in the story is 2 Samuel chapter 8, 13 and 14. That's really the turning point and their animosity and and their conflict. And he states it this way. David conquered the Edomites in a great battle recorded in 2 Samuel 8, 13 through 14. And from that time on, through the reign of Solomon, the Edomites were subject to the descendants of Jacob. Until that time, until 2 Samuel 8, Edom must have been thought of as Israel's elder brother, that they, in a sense, were stronger, older, and more developed. But by the time you get to this battle, the elder, Edom, is supplanted by the younger, Jacob or Israel, in in a clear historical analogy of the Jacob-Esau parallel in Genesis. From that point on, one can trace the bitter bitter rivalry, which is documented in the prophecy of Obadiah. That that really is the turning point here. So it's this constant conflict, bitterness, battle between the two. It started in the womb. It continued on nation against nation. Nation, people against people, brother in a sense against brother. The rivalry continued throughout the monarchy. So it continued through the United Kingdom and 
Okay, through the monarchy. So it continued through the, 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 the animosity continues through the United Kingdom and it continues through the monarchy of the divided kingdom. So this animosity continues. It just, it just, it never stopped. And Jehoshaphat's reign, Edom attack, Edom joined the Ammonites and the Moabites and attack against Judah. That's during Jehoshaphat's reign. Edom joined the Ammonites, uh, the Ammonites, if I could say their name correctly, and the Moabites and attack against Judah. But the attack ended with the Ammonites and Moabites defeating the Edomites. And we read about that in 2 Chronicles 20, verses 1 through 2, 10 through 11, and 22 through 26, or just say 2 Chronicles chapter 20, all right? So that's Jehoshaphat's reign. Edom joined the Ammonites and the Moabites, but the attack ended with the Ammonites and the Moabites defeating the Edomites. And the reign of Jehoram, Jehoshaphat's son, Edom revolted against Judah and crowned their own king. That's 2 Kings 8, 20 through 22, 2 Chronicles 21, 8. Later, uh, Amaziah, king of Judah, crushed Edom and changed the name of the city Selah to Jachthel, 2 Kings 14, 7, uh, and 2 Chronicles 25, 11 through 12. Later, Edom attacked Judah during Ahaz's reign, 2 Chronicle, 2 Chronicles 28, 17. In 586 BC, Edom encouraged Babylon to destroy Jerusalem. So, so what I want you to just see is you go through the Old Testament, you see the Edomites and you see this constant back and forth, this constant back and forth. But I will, I, now the, none, of the, I, none of the books I haven't currently in front of me, I don't think mention this, but I think there's something you should, should think about. As you see this back and forth, don't you see in a sense time and time again, God protecting Israel and the Edomites being defeated and, and, and a, or I'll say defeated, not necessarily destroyed, but defeated. Almost God protecting one, defeating the other, blessing the one, judging the other. It, it, it does seem to be maybe a, a kind of something that appears over and over. The Edomites driven from their land in the late 6th or early 5th century BC, settled in a place called Adumia, I-D-U-M-E-A, which is southern Judah. The Adumians were eventually forced to become Jewish proselytes under John Hycranus, a Maccabean king, a Maccabean. King Herod the Great, who tried to murder the baby Jesus, was an Idumean. And Jesus, in Jesus' protection from Herod's murderous rampage against Bethlehem's infants, we have yet another illustration of grace towards Israel and judgment of Edom. All right. Oh, that's, uh, well, someone just asked, I wonder if there's any significance to Herod being from the Edomites, the Herod who Jesus appeared before. That's... That's an interesting, once again, well, in a sense, you kind of see another back, once again, they're, they're placed in conflict with one another, right? Um, okay. All right. So, all right. So you have the wrong Herod. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So the, so, so the, the Herod that we're referring to is the Herod here that tried to kill the, the babies. Oh, just to make sure, I'm going to make sure uh, that I understand what Will is saying. So not not the Herod that Jesus appeared before. You're talking the Herod that tried to kill the babies. I'm assuming that's the one you're referring to. I'm going to make sure so that there's no confusion here. I'll give it just a second. When you're doing the live chat, just for those who are listening, there's about a minute, about a minute delay, almost a minute and a half. So I got to make sure that we're on the same page here. But anytime there, anytime you see the Edomites they almost always appear in some form, some conflict in some way with Israel in some way, shape, or form. It, it seems to be the, the, the common thing. All right, yes, okay. The ones that had the baby killed. So let me, let me go back through that so just make sure everyone understands, all right? So the Edomites are driven from their land in the late 6th or early 5th century BC, 
All right? And I think it's the Nabataeans, I think, is the one that drives them out of the land, something like that. If, if I have the name wrong, you can forgive me. They settled in Idumea, I-D-U-M-E-A, which was in southern Judah. This, this is how this is all going to come together. The Idumeans were eventually forced to become Jewish proselytes under John Hycranius, a Maccabean. So the Maccabeans forced the, the Idumeans, or in a sense, the Edomites, to become pros- Jewish proselytes. They're forced to do that. King Herod the Great, who tried to murder the baby Jesus, was an Idumean. And Jesus' protection from Herod's murderous rampage against Bethlehem's infants, we have yet another illustration of grace towards Israel and judgment of Edom. So in other words, this conflict between them, in a sense, even manifests itself right there when Jesus is a baby and Herod is trying to have the babies killed. Even right there, the con- it's really the conflict that started all the way back in Genesis inside the womb. That's where it kind of, it starts right there. So, so understanding this conflict, understanding this animosity is absolutely foundational to understanding the book of Obadiah because, and it's really, it makes sense and showing, I, I really, I'm going to, I'm going to say this and you may disagree. I think, oh, no, no, you got to hear what I'm about to say here. I think an understanding of the doctrine of election is absolutely critical in understanding God's harsh words of judgment against Edom. Because throughout, it's like, here's the Edomites, here's the Israelites. And God seems to bless and protect Israel and judges and and condemns the Edomites, right? I think, I think this is, and I think this is where Romans 8 comes into play here, right? I mean, this is the whole Jacob and Esau, one I've loved, one I've hated. And like, wait, why, why? Because it's not like Israel was always better. Now God does bring chastisement upon Israel over and over and over. We see that. Even Judah goes into Babylonian captivity, but God has made promises for them that he didn't make for the Edomites. He, he promises to restore them. He, res- he promises the land and all of the promises given to Israel are not given to the Edomites. So it demonstrates the power of God's sovereign election and choice. I know that people don't like that theology, but I mean, why would Paul use that as an example of election? Because we see it throughout the Old Testament. We see conflict, 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 but who's protected? Israel, who's blessed? Israel, who's judged? Edom, Edomites, who in many cases is defeated in battle. Now, Israel has their own defeats, yes, but it's always like, it's almost like the, it's, it's judgment towards Edom. It's chastisement towards Israel. Right, right? I mean, is that, is that, is that not a, a very important distinction to be made? I think there's a distinction there to be made. Now, we're at 58 minutes. We need to do the outline. So here's what we'll do. I'll stop. I'll stop. We'll take a break. And then I'll come back in. And then uh, we will we'll do an outline. I think, we're gonna, I think that's what we'll work on. We'll, we'll work on an outline of Obadiah. All right? I think, that, and then we may do a survey. We, we, we may try to do an outline and a survey. I think we'll try that, maybe. We'll see. Now, there's a lot more we could do. I know that spent most of the time just doing with the Edomites, but I, I just think it's, I, I, I believe that that's critical. I believe that's critical in understanding. And, and I just don't think you can overlook the doctrine of election in this. I just, I just think it's, it's, it's underneath the surface. And then when you get to Romans 8, it's right, right there in your face. It's right there in your face. And Paul can use that because we see it throughout the Old Testament. Well, there's the Edomites. There's Israel. Look look what happens. Well, God chose them, not them. God loved the one, hated the other. And, and, and it's just, it's so, what, shows God's sovereignty. All right, I'm just going to stop right there. All right, there, there's the Edomites. I think that gets us, I think that gets us all the way to where we need to be.
I think, I think that does a pretty good, uh, there's probably more information we could obviously look up regarding the Edomites. We, we could, uh, we could go to the Bible dictionary and see what they have to say, but I think that covers it relatively good. And, uh, I'll leave the rest for you to look up. I would challenge you for homework, uh, for those participating in the Bible study exercise, just grab a Bible dictionary, one, and just look at an entry for what they say about Edom and the Edomites and just write a, a basic summary of what you find. That's just, just an, an added, an added assignment. I don't, I think I did a, a pretty decent job, but let's make sure we really have this down, that we understand the Edomites. So just grab the best Bible dictionary you can find, read the entry, and then just write out a summary, just a basic summary of what they had to say. It may be very similar to what we've covered, but we just want to make sure that we have correct understanding of the Edomites. And make sure we're, we were, the Herod we were referring to was the one who tried to kill the babies, not just make sure we have the right Herod and we don't confuse anything there. All right, I'll stop right there. We'll be back and we'll do an outline. All right, I think that's what we'll do, All right? You can email me any thoughts or your homework, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. All right, we'll start again in just a few minutes. God bless. <laughs> 